1: You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. I'm joined today by Kevin O'Kos, who has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on the Cold War in Africa. Kevin is a member of the Salvage editorial collective and his first book, Red Africa, is due from Verso in October. His piece in this issue is a review of two books, White Malice, the CIA and the Neo-Colonisation of Africa by Susan Williams, and Cold War Liberation, the Soviet Union and the Collapse of the Portuguese Empire in Africa by Natalia Telepneva. Also joining us is Jeremy Harding, a contributing editor at the LRB, whose books include Small Wars, Small Mercies, Journeys in Africa's Disputed Nations, and Border Vigils, Keeping Migrants Out of the Rich World. Hello both, and thank you for joining me today. Hi Tom, thank you for having us. So there used to be, or, or perhaps there still is, a story about decolonisation in Africa. We could maybe call it the wind of change interpretation of history. According to which beginning with Ghana in 1957, nations across Africa won their independence as the European former imperial powers withdrew from the continent over the next decade or so. But as you make clear in your piece, Kevin, that isn't quite what happened, is it?
2: Yeah, I guess this is the kind of narrative that is popular because you do have this wave of decolonization. We're talking starting with Ghana in 57. You've got um, Guinea achieving independence in 1958. Then you've got what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, independent in the nineteen sixty. Kenya in 1963. So there is this kind of wave of decolonization that makes us feel like this is a process that has swept the continent along. But then, um, you know, as is pointed out, as I point out in the piece, it's South Africa, Rhodesia, um, Southwest Africa, for a long time, remained under white minority rule still, for quite a long time after that wave of dec- decolonization. Um, So despite the kind of formal withdrawal, first of all, of imperial powers, there continued to be these countries which exercised white minority rule. But then I think what comes out in um, Susan Williams' book, for example, in White Malice quite a lot, is this process of neocolonialism. So despite the end of formal colonisation, these nations remained somewhat formally dependent on outside influences. And I think um, William's book does a very good job of tracing the process of how that happens, of how these independent countries remain in kind of the US's sphere of influence, or, for example, the Belgian sphere of, in, um, sphere of influence. Um, and I think what, what it does a really good job of in terms of challenging this popular narrative is also pushing back a, a little bit against, which is still too much of a popular narrative that somehow African regimes are inherently corrupt or they've inherently got governance issues. And I think um, reading White Malice, for example, you get to the point of like, oh, there's actually quite a lot of different processes at play and challenges that these newly independent governments face um, in trying to actually build a proper functioning independent state.
0: Yeah, I I think Kevin's account, you call it a a sort of first wave of independence, don't you, in in, in the piece? Right. And I, I think that's what's really important to hang on to. It was only the first wave and the notion that we should think of Africa as becoming decolonized almost overnight in a period of, well, a period of four years, say, is misleading. Not only because, as Kevin says, we've got the conundrum of white minority rule, Rhodesia, South Africa, occupied Namibia, occupied occupied by South Africa. But we've also got a a situation in which uh, Portugal has still to relinquish its, its colonies, you know and this is a massive amount of of Southern Africa, Southern and West Africa, we still have Spain occupying the Western Sahara, Spanish Sahara as it called it. And then we have oddities going on in in the Horn where Ethiopia, which was never colonized, has actually appropriated Eritrea. Eritrea wants to move through the normal channels of the liberation struggles for its independence, but can't for very complex reasons partly to do with the fact that uh, the OAU was headquartered in Addis and Haile Selassie was deeply influential. But in all these places, colonialism of one kind or another, whether it's going to turn into an African form of colonialism, as it did in the, in the mid-70s when Spain pulled out of, of, of Spanish Sahara, or whether it's going to be full-on European decolonization, which is what happened in, in when the Portuguese withdrew, these are the big unsolved questions that the wave of decolonization that began in the late 50s and ends roughly um, in the early 60s that leaves us with plus minority rule
1: i mean i suppose one of the things that that makes clear is that i mean to try and talk about the whole of africa in the same way as it were is completely impossible that every you know there are so many things taking place in different parts that different parts of the continent and and one thing i mean you're Piece Kevin covers a lot of that ground. I mean, the Ethiopian-Eritrea don't come into the books so much, so that's not there. But but e- even within the you know, the countries that you talk about, there is a literally a huge amount of ground covered, and I'm not sure that we can talk about all of that in the time available today. But it's just, so if we if we were to look at, for example, the country that's now known, the Democratic Republic of Congo, that was the formerly Belgian Congo, and going back to what you said, Kevin, about you know Belgium pulled out, but then the CIA well either moved in or remained so what what happened in in congo to to prevent well an independent nation forming itself right so perhaps it's
2: good to start with just this is what it was popularly referred to at the time as the congo crisis is kind of what ensued after independence i think the what is today the drc is perhaps probably the most famous example of like a brutal the brutal brutal repression of a left leaning newly independent government in africa I mean which I think is incredibly dramatized in Raoul Peck's uh, 2000 film Lumumba. Yeah. So it's kind of basically so the process is very instructive I think in getting a sense of how this process of the neo-colonization of a country takes place. So the Congo becomes independent around on um, ni- in June in June 1960 Patrice Lumumba, a left-leaning politician, is elected as prime minister and Joseph Kasavubu becomes the president. Lumumba is the leader of the MNC movement, which the various people are also a part of. Um, Mobutu, who we'll surely speak about later in the podcast, um, also a former member of the movement. But, um, you know, in, the, in around July or so, um, Moshe Chomba declares independence of Katanga, which is um, kind of a region of the Belt, which is then um, the De- De- Democratic Republic of Congo. Belgian troops basically, which it was supposed to have left, are then sent in to, you know, under the guise of protecting Belgian citizens, but really also are there to protect Belgian mining interests. At that point, the UN steps in. Lumoburg tries to turn to the UN for support, especially Dag Hammarskjöld. But the troops are not allowed to intervene in this crisis, in this secession crisis. Um, there's another secession that happens around the same time where Albert Kalonji declares the secession of South Kasai. But... Lumumba kind of tries to turn, which I think is often a story here with kind of the way these anti-colonial leaders exercised agency. He tries to turn first to Eisenhower for support and the UN, who kind of turn him away. And then he kind of um, goes for the next best choice, which is the Soviet Union. But this causes a break with um, his with the president, Joseph Kasavubu. So then the kind of crisis that ensues Kind of culminates in the murder of Patrice Lumumba. He's first dismissed from his post as prime minister. Then, I think what you know, what I'm tried what I tried to bring out in the piece is kind of some of the meddling that went on behind the scenes for quite a long time during that process, which is kind of plans to assassinate Lumumba um, that were already drawn up by the CIA and Belgian intelligence and had for a long time been in place in some form or another. And uh, at that point, by the 1960s, it had be- it had been decided that uh, Lumumba would be a problem going forward for U.S. and Belgian interests, and that this, basically, that he needed to be cut off from the picture and that he needed to be eliminated. And then after that, there's a a crisis of governance for a longer period of time, during which there's another more rebellions, um, former Lumumba supporters launching rebellions in parts of the countries. This kind of, the Congo crisis, I guess, comes to an end, um with the seizure of power of who then still is called uh, Joseph Désiré Mobutu and his uh, seizure of power in 1965 which he would then later basically become the president of um the Democratic Republic of Congo but then known for a long time as Zaire to until 1997
1: and that was with the blessing as it were of the of the CIA and of the US government Exactly. So kind of what I talk
2: about in the piece is how early Belgian intelligence um, had already recruited Mobutu. There's a figure that I talk about in the piece who comes up quite a lot, and I'm sure Jeremy has written also a lot about um, Larry Devlin, who already formed contacts with Mobutu in the 1950s, while Mobutu was essentially still pretending or at least ostensibly a close friend of Lumumba's.
0: I feel what you write about uh, about larry devlin and your piece is, is um it's fascinating and i think it he in a way is he's merely a symbol but he's a very instructive symbol right uh, of what happened in congo and what happened in congo another thing that your piece makes me feel was was absolutely crucial to the way that that parts of central africa and indeed southern and southwest africa w- would unfold historically in the years to come i mean it was the most extraordinary piece of murderous chicanery that went on in with this prerogative that doesn't wash anymore the old uh, neo-imperial prerogatives of of agencies and and outside meddlers it just seemed to determine the way in which the end of colonialism in parts further south and and further west would go which is to say badly uh, because the template is there for massive intervention and um
2: yeah. And I think just to respond to that quickly, I think what I also kind of in, in reading the two books and doing research for the piece, I think what you get a lot of a sense for is how brutal some of these plans are and the way kind of these CIA agents talk about the assassination of anti-colonial leaders is, I mean, it's, it's entirely shocking. I mean, it's information that's been available, but just reading basically long transcripts of their cables and communications You know, it goes from, oh, should we shoot him? No, we could poison him. Sure, that might work. And that kind of like back and forth exchange just in a very, very cold, calculated way, making decisions about the future of these independent nations. In
1: 2013 or 2014, we had a a Bernard Porter wrote a piece about about Lumumba's assassination. And we got a, a letter from David Lee, Lord David Lee, saying that over tea in the House of Lords, Daphne Park, who had been the MI6 person in in congo had she said oh no I, I i arranged all that and someone else wrote a letter saying you know two members from opposite sides of the house of lords sit, sit around over tea discussing you know the murders of, of a liberation leader how very civilized i mean there is some doubt as to whether how much mi6 was involved i mean had were the british involved in that do we have is there any evidence beyond tea room gossip in the house of lords
2: I feel like I didn't come across anything that was very, very tangible, but I think it points a lot to uh, CIA involvement, um, Belgium's continued involvement in that assassination. But I don't know, Jeremy, if you know for a fact uh, whether MI6 was involved, because I think even with, I think even what we get in uh, in Y Malice is only a citation of kind of Daphne Park's claim that MI6 was involved, um, but beyond that, not too much other evidence. But
0: I think all. all... All Western intelligence was interested in the way that Central Africa was going to unfold and also hugely, hugely interested in in a range of possible outcomes in South Africa, in apartheid South Africa. So everybody's eye was on the ball. But that doesn't mean that that these agencies had actual agency on the ground. I mean, this was really an American project. And um, I'm talking about Lumumba and and the Belgian project and a corporate project as well. But it it sort of takes us from this idea of aggressive containment, which is really what happened, I think, in 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 the absolute determination that Lumumba should not hang on to power. This aggressive containment evolves in the years to come into radical forms of destabilization with large numbers of troops on the ground. And I mean why once thinking above all about neighbouring Angola, it was also true to a lesser extent in in Mozambique also independent in 75 destabilized uh, almost from the day that it, it raised the independence flag so you have this kind of continuum i think in which and i've only really realized this by reading Kevin's piece in which the tone is set in Congo
1: and that question about corporate interests is very important because you you've mentioned belgian mining interests and there is this question i mean is it the idea okay you can have political independence but we're we're keeping control of your of your natural resources that you know you mentioned that uh, uranium that had been mined in in congo was essential to the manhattan project i mean that the, in terms of the the arms race and the cold war that congo was central to that and was that what it was ultimately about that the the us through these belgian mining companies needed to keep control of those or wanted to keep control of those raw materials
2: yeah, I think that's the two are somewhat inseparable, but one is not reducible to the other. So I don't think the idea of ideological conflict can be reduced down all the way to only the interests of mining companies and resource extraction. Because, you know, if you look at the history of anti-communism in the United States, um, just kind of as a discourse, um, has a very, very long history too. But I think they can also be not be separated because specifically in the congo natural resources played such a such a huge role in kind of in this, in this decision to intervene in post independence politics i do find the congo um, or the drc very symptomatic in that sense um as kind of this place where oftentimes africa has been thought of as somewhat on the periphery of the global capitalist system but actually when you look at this kind of country it's so central to the functioning of the global capitalist economy it kind of is basically a fundamental part of the system. So if you don't have access to these resources, then also it becomes a systemic problem. Because then how will you sustain kind of the idea of a functioning capitalist world system? So I think these two things are intertwined, are very much intertwined in that way. But then the conflict I guess between or the the ideological conflict and its relation to resource extraction becomes even more complicated, I think, when we look at the case of Angola, which Jeremy has written a lot about. Um, and its national oil company, for example, where you know you get a Marxist-Leninist regime working with Western uh, oil companies and, and businessmen to finance their um, governance of, of Ang- the governance of Angola, while also selling oil to South Africa, whom it's engaged in a protracted uh,
0: war with. Yeah, I'm very happy to do so. <laughs> um, yes, I, I I agree. I think that ideology and uh and resource requirements are are intertwined especially when you look at the picture from the point of view of people intervening in these places from the outside but it's perfectly possible to have a, a, a sort of not a watertight ideology but, but but a kind of waterproof ideology that allows you to conduct all kinds of, of 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 business with the enemy and that's never been a problem as far as I can see
2: yeah, and I think maybe also just remaining on that question for a second, I think there's also the complication of, you know, um, this is not to say that, um, you know, yeah, it makes the point that um, just because it's a socialist government doesn't mean it won't be an extractive government, for example. Or that, you know, that that means that somehow the natural resources will be left in the ground or that the broader population will benefit from the profits that are made through the extraction of natural resources. So I think there's always these questions of like the outcome of this uh, Ideological conflict doesn't necessarily mean that resource extraction stops, or this kind of, or the influence of uh, Western companies within this kind of extractive structure
1: stop. And in terms of that, the relationship between those, those corporate and political interests, that, so the the two regions that um, tried to secede from from Congo Katanga and South Kasai, which they and they had the support of the U.S. and Belgium, is that right? And would they did the U.S. and Belgium genuinely want those regions to secede and become independent countries, which they would have more more control over? Or was it just a a way to destabilize, destabilize the country and and undermine Lumumba? I think that's a difficult question to answer in terms of what the overall intentions
2: were, and what people were planning and what kind of the State Department's plans were for the Congo. But I think the way I kind of see the situation is that these were only a first step to taking control over the entirety of the Congo. So I think these secession movements are there to destabilize the national government. So then it kind of, you know, to step by step, be able to gain control over the entirety of the Congo. I think, you know, you have um, also Antoine Gizenga's project in the Eastern Congo that becomes unsuccessful or that is kind of, it's not necessarily crushed, but that doesn't really work as an independent state. So these kind of examples show you that I think that um, there's a lot of interest that wouldn't have allowed for these different entities, you know, parts of the Congo, one part of the Congo governed by Lumumba and one maybe by Kalonji and one, uh, you know, and then in, in, in an independent Katanga. So I don't think that that would have actually been a viable project for, for example, the US. that would have been in the US's interest, um, especially considering how strategically important the Congo
0: um, is. And also at the time of Lumumba's murder, we're moving forward to... Um the OAU's charter in which really it's African heads of state and African entities who are the most distressed by the idea of a rearrangement of former colonial boundaries. That includes secessions. It seemed like an absolute no-no at the time uh, because people were worried that the that the communities that had been formed and, and, and acceded to what was hoped would be modern statehood in terms of the the boundaries that were imposed on them, it was, it, it was thought that these would rapidly dissolve back into, into more kind of organic communities, so-called tribal or ethnic communities. And it was taboo. So even though the charter came later, the idea of a, a full-blooded Katanga secession and the creation of an independent state, I think was something that the international community circle greeted with great dismay.
1: And in the the UN declaration, I mean, I can't remember, I can't remember the official title of it, but the UN declaration essentially said that colonial boundaries have to, have to be maintained or, or respected. But Adewale Majapierce, who wrote about the Biafra War and Nigeria in a in a previous issue, has more than once expressed skepticism, shall we say, about the wisdom of that line of maintaining those boundaries, and seems to argue quite strongly that actually trying to hold together a country like nigeria as a single country is is a is a mistake and and is ultimately doomed i mean does that apply in other countries as well or is that too large a question
0: i think it's too large a question except <laughs> perhaps to say that that we are roughly 80 years on since the organization of african unity charter a great deal has happened to weaken our faith in uh, the inviolability of colonial boundaries and i know that adewale has felt for a long time that nigeria is the most precarious and fanciful entity that was created in in west africa and that it doesn't really have a future that he understands um in its current state and i'm sure that he's not the only african intellectual or west african intellectual to be thinking about the, this inviolability issue because we've gone on for so long with um with states in in parts of Africa that are are as unsatisfactory as as states in Western and eastern europe
1: and I mean as you mentioned earlier, jeremy, the different kinds of colonialism that the that Eritrea was part of Ethiopia and then became independent south sudan i mean it has there are these cases where well i wouldn't say a second wave more than a second which an nth wave of of independence movements have been sort of the emergence of countries like Eritrea and South Sudan. That's
0: right and they're very discouraging models for the creation of new states. If I may say so, I mean you wouldn't want to go founding many more new states on on, on the basis of what's happening in Eritrea, and certainly not South Sudan. I mean what do you, what do you think Kevin?
2: No, I, I I agree with that, I think. But um, just to kind of finish up that point as well, of course, the question you're asking, Thomas, is a, is a very large question. And I think it also kind of has something to do with the project of national liberation in a lot of places, being like, oh, we'll take these, we'll take kind of the boundaries of the colonial state and we'll create a new nation and a new idea of what it means to belong together. So oftentimes these secessions would have just gone fundamentally against the idea that's even driving some of these national liberation movements. Though they were, of course, I think what we get in, you know, in the case of um, even Mozambique, Angola, though they were split by like ethnic divisions, of course, even though as much as they tried to paper over that and tried to cover those up, Of course, there were all these divisions that existed, but the driving idea behind this National Liberation Project was, look, that we will be able to build a new nation and we will be able to get different people from parts of the country together to kind of participate in the founding of this new state. So I think secession was very much a contradiction of that project and its rhetoric. So allowing that to succeed is also kind of basically going against what the National Liberation movements had claimed to be doing.
0: I, I totally agree with that. And I, I'd go further and say that secession was thought of as a, a reactionary idea. It was a spanner in the works for, for independence, whether it was independence that was negotiated or whether it was independence that was won through a national liberation struggle. What was necessary to actually enact the project of independence was a place that you, the rudiments of a nation state with boundaries that had been set up in the 1880s or whenever. That's where you enacted your project if people started saying, well, I don't think so, you know, we want, we want to get out of here, or we want to enlarge or, or merge with, with, with a, in some irredentist way with a neighboring state, then the rot sets in.
2: Um, Yeah, I'd also like to just add to that very briefly, just kind of the idea of, you know, I think um, there's been a lot of conversations as well about how anti-colonial leaders used international institutions like the UN. And I think the Basis for kind of participation in the UN is kind of this acknowledgement of your claim to statehood, and I think that's where a lot of people could, you know, anti-colonial leaders could make their claims to address grievances and could ask for support in different uh, in different issues that they were having. Um, so I think it becomes this important site to actually build the kind of post-colonial state. So secession was very much makes that process more difficult of being like, okay, this is the entity that is recognized at the UN. And this is the entity through which we make claims to the international community or make demands to the international community.
1: We haven't talked about the other side of the Cold War. We talked quite a lot about the US meddling. But the Soviet Union wasn't sitting quietly by all this time, was it?
2: Yeah, so the Soviet Union had kind of a uh, couple of years earlier had already made this post-Stalinist turn. You had uh, Khrushchev's secret speech in 1956 denouncing Stalinism, which had opened up the Soviet Union and kind of opened it up again to be interested in the Third World and assisting these liberation movements in the Third World. In the Congo cr- specifically, it's kind of, I think I mentioned earlier that uh, Lumumba had turned to the Soviet Union only after approaching Eisenhower and being disappointed with the UN's uh, refusal to send troops into Katanga to suppress the rebellion. The Soviets did actually offer support to Lumumba. They sent in technicians, air crews, other support. But there wasn't that much evidence that they had really captured or had that much influence on the ground, really, there's the statistics that I met that I mentioned in the book. It's saying that there were about 380 uh, Soviets and Czech Slovaks in the DRC at that time, versus 14,000 UN troops and a, a couple of thousand Belgian officers and military advisors and technicians. So I think the scale of um, Soviet intervention in the Congo is it's on a different scale than the CIA intervention, which was really throwing money at this problem. And I think the agents on the ground had a lot of money, a lot of help to. Make sure that, that things go their way. Um, so, in this case, the, the Soviet in, uh, involvement was relatively limited, um, and there was never really a, a big military presence in the country during that period of time. I think it's um, if we look at not the DRC, but if we look at the case, I guess, which becomes then another situation is the case of Angola again, um, where Soviet involvement was a little more direct, and um, the amount of money spent was a lot higher in because I think that at that point, the Soviets had realized the scale of the problem that if they didn't support particular national liberation movements, then they would fall into the sphere of influence, not only the U S but then in Southern Africa, apartheid South Africa. So I think that's when the Soviets kind of realized that they had to take this seriously and they had to basically try to really supply um, the military technology, the financial uh, means for these liberation movements to succeed.
1: And and then this in Angola was 10, 15 years later that we're after the the fall of the fascist regime in Lisbon in 1974, and then very rapid withdrawal of, of Portuguese forces from its African possessions. And that's when, and as you say in your piece, that the rapid withdrawal of Portuguese troops from Angola created a power vacuum that none of the competing forces could fill. So, I mean, what did, what did happen then? In,
2: in this case, I think I would probably uh, pass that question on to Jeremy as well, who has written so extensively on the particular uh, civil war that happened right after, right after Portugal vacated uh, Angola. Because then, you know, things, so, uh, apartheid South Africa gets involved. So I can maybe speak briefly to the early stages of some of this. Um, some of the actors involved is, for example, Holden Roberto, who'd had a relationship with the CIA already earlier, I think since the 60s. Who was kind of one of the parties in there involved? Then I think who I talk about in the piece quite a lot is uh, Agostino Neto, um, the leader of the MPLA, um, the Marxist-Leninist party, who had had contacts with the Soviets for a very long time, but they kind of still distrusted him. So there was always a level of uh, there was always a bit of distrust there in terms of whether they were willing to fully support him in his project or whether it was not worthwhile. And then of course we have. Again, we have the UNITA rebels, which kind of become the main opposing uh, party in the civil war, uh, led by Jonas Savimbi, who kind of had been a very ideologically vague kind of figure for a very long time, had approached, you know, the Eastern Bloc for support. But then it had become turned into an anti-communist and asked the US for support and then kind of engaged in this very, very long civil war against the MPLA
0: government. Yeah, these are absolutely the the figures to look at, and and the three movements. But one of the issues about vacuums of this kind is that you have to have outside forces who are interested in filling them. It isn't just the the internal rivals who can create this level of catastrophe. Somebody else has to want to meddle, and ha- and 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 you need this element. Uh, for it to start gaining momentum. The same is true, I think, in in the case of Spain. You know, I mean, that whole period, 74 or 75, uh, Iberian fascism comes to an end and things really start moving in the, in the former colonies. Um, and although there were Portuguese soldiers who continued actually to fight with the MPLA for a while, s- some dedicated people who wanted to join, and although there were Spanish troops who were sent to protect the Western Sahara, uh, against incursions from Morocco. The key thing was that um, it, it was the will to go in there and do what was in your own interests uh, that made these places so difficult to manage for the leaderships. Um, and in in, in Western the case of Western Sahara, it was Morocco. In the case of Angola, it was Zaire, Mobutu. Uh, 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 Roberto, Holden Roberto, was related by marriage to Mobutu. Um, and of course, Crucially, South Africa and Washington in 1975, independence, you know, coming off the back of a, a very serious defeat in, in Vietnam and keen not to see uh, its disadvantages uh, or its loss of ground being reiterated in, uh, in Central Southern Africa. So you have big players who want to go in and, and leave their mark. And that, that's the worrying thing about the vacuum. Because actually, if, if without those players, it might have unfolded rather differently.
1: But there was also that, as you you know you've you've written about this in the NLB, Jeremy, that the the role of Cuba in Angola was absolutely decisive, and that doesn't seem to have been self interested in Cuban's interest or other than to show that they could defeat the US. What was why did Castro send those troops to to Angola? I
0: think it was some kind of emotional. Uh, ideological commitment to an anti-apartheid struggle. You see a column of South African soldiers moving up through the southern Luanda to try and take the capital, you know, within days of the Declaration of Independence by the MPLA, uh, and it's all systems go as far as Castro was concerned. It was an act of complicated solidarity, if if I could put it like that. And it, it did set Havana at odds with Moscow uh, as the war unfolded in the coming years. Cubans, Cubans were instrumental in driving the column back from, from Luanda. Uh, uh, south Africans went back to Namibia um, and parts of the south and began to cultivate Savimbi C- very seriously and, and, and readying themselves for, for, for a new and, and much longer war, which meant in turn that Castro had to commit his troops for a longer period of time. And in the course of that time, very different ideas about how you prosecuted a war against uh, what effectively in in Unita's case was a a mixture between a guerrilla army and a standing army, kind of a standing army. How you did that was was a matter of contention between Moscow and Havana. But the Cubans were a a very decisive force in the way that nobody could quite come to prevail in Western Sahara, for example. It was just the Polisario Front with backing from Algeria, a little bit of backing from Libya. But bit by bit uh, with the Moroccan force and and also the Moroccan settler program began to uh, prevail against uh, any kind of decolonization option. That's where we are today.
1: In your piece, Kevin, you say that Nelson Mandela said that the the defeat of South Africa in, in Angola by the MPLA with Cuban help, showed that the apartheid regime could be defeated, that it wasn't. And he I mean, he said that it was an important moment in the South African liberation struggle to show that the apartheid regime could be defeated. Is that right?
2: Yeah, and I, I guess it's also, I think the important uh, thing there is also, for example, um, is, is Namibia, which then stops becoming basically a South African possession very shortly after that. And I think that is kind of a thing that that was made possible by the Cuban intervention, but I think I wanted to also respond to, to uh, or like talk a, a bit about uh, Jeremy's point about all these foreign influence. I think because we do come to a point where I think what I was trying to bring out in the piece too is the complex kind of diplomatic situation that anti-colonial struggles and these post-independence governments were facing at that time. So you know, in Angola, you have the conflict between Cuba and the Soviet Union over military strategy. The Soviet Union wants a standing army. Cuba wants kind of to push more guerrilla warfare. Um, And then on the other side, you have Savimbi, who's backed by the US, but who's also um, supported by by China at that point in time. Um, So these kind of contradictions and being able to try and navigate who to get help from at what time and who to kind of support within these larger geopolitical conflicts basically put a lot of pressure on, on these leaders to make decisions that were in their best interest while also ensuring that the supply of especially weapons and uh, military personnel and technical personnel would continue so that they wouldn't fall to um, a South Africa-backed uh, UNITA
0: rebel army. And also um, to talk about tensions between Havana and, and, and Moscow is, is not to forget that Pretoria and Washington who were allies in this struggle, got on extremely badly. I mean, the apartheid regime never trusted Washington. It depended on Washington, but it always felt that Washington was about to deceive it or plan on strategies that it wouldn't. Uh, uh, it, it wouldn't share with Pretoria. the The apartheid regime felt that uh, that the Americans were deeply untrustworthy. But the fact is that they they worked in a, a reasonably a reasonably sound military alliance, you know, to smash up Angola and to hold on to Namibia for many years.
1: The question of China's role, I mean, you say in your piece, Kevin, that the decision not to support the MPLA was perhaps Mao's China's greatest failure in Africa. Could you talk a bit more about that?
2: Yeah, I think because I think a lot of the I mean, you, you speak about the later period, but I think it kind of starts at the early stages of kind of the Sino Soviet split and a distrust with the direction that the Soviet Union is moving in at the time. And basically, at this point, um, China, Maoist China decides that it has its own independent Africa policy. And I think there's, you know, the claims about Soviet uh, Soviet policy being revisionist, then and its interpretation of Marxism, Leninism being different to the one that the Chinese interpretation of it. Um, and then you find, I think, especially in Cold War Liberation, the other book that I review in the piece, um, you get a sense of China's early policies in recruiting different anti-colonial leaders, especially from the Portuguese colonies. So forging very close contacts with uh, Massinero dos Santos um, from Mozambique, uh, Mario Pinto de Andrade from from Angola as well, and Viriato da Cruz, and kind of inviting, I think, inviting them on state-sponsored visits to China in the 50s already, at the same time when they were kind of making these trips to the Soviet Union to also see kind of socialism in action and to kind of where the Soviet Union was trying to convince them of their model, to follow their model of Marxism-Leninism. Um, so some of, you know, some of these anti-colonial figures that I speak about briefly in the piece ended up being very committed Maoists um, and ended up basically following that line more than kind of any Soviet, um, Soviet ideological position. Cruz specifically moved to China in 1966 during the, at the height of the Cultural Revolution and stayed there until 1973. But I think the speaking to China's role, it's I think Maoism was very, very appealing to a lot of anti-colonial leaders in terms of its emphasis on the kind of rural population and, and peasantry as a revolutionary subject. And it provided a theory and practice of Korea struggle that seemed extremely useful in these countries that were primarily agrarian still and where lots of people lived outside of the cities. Um, so I think that led to quite quite a lot of figures embracing Maoism. You know, you had even... Um, in Tanzania, it became extremely influential um, Maoism among not only the students but also the support for Julius Nyerere's uh, government in the 1960s became very firm. And Zimbabwe, of course. And Zimbabwe, of of course. That's yeah. That's one of the one of the very big examples of of Chinese support in Africa. But I think the legacy of that um, does carry on today because it has been a, a presence on the continent for much much longer than a lot of kind of you know popular narratives would gesture to it it's been its presence has been not necessarily in terms of a military presence but in terms of uh, military training aid kind of sending students to china to study etc um so its presence on the continent has been has gone goes back to i guess the the 50s in 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 that
1: in that sense but more recently in sort of post-maoist china the interest is less ideological than more in terms of well, it's described as, in, as investment, well, I suppose it is investment in the figures $150 billion have been invested by China in sub-Saharan Africa over the last two decades. And a lot of it is about, brings us back to the question of resource extraction, right? That China's less interested in exporting ideology and more interested in importing raw materials.
0: Is that not true of every extractor now? Yeah, the parallels I see, I guess, between um,
2: the period that I w- write about in the piece and contemporary China's involvement is, again, I think that there's that's where we get to a question of agency. And there's a lot of African leadership now that sees this as a decision to be able to almost like play global superpowers against each other. So the idea of, you know, going to China for, for loans instead of going to the, um, you know, US-backed global financial institutions like the World Bank or the IMF seems to give them another option so they can play it against these US-led institutions. And, you know, you see all the conflicts about debt restructuring that are happening at the moment and kind of these discussions um, just being like, oh, basically China's being used as, also as a pressure point to um, push back against some of these other institutions. And I think during the period that I talk about, there's a lot of that kind of very strategic playing also the superpowers against each other in trying to ensure that one can reach... Basically, the aim of the the country, or what you're trying
1: to achieve. I mean, the question of debt. You mentioned at the beginning the idea that what is it the difficulties facing African countries since independence and debt to the IMF has been a, and to the World Bank has been a huge problem, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, I I mean, it historically has been, and I think you know the structural adjustment programs that were put in place by the IMF and, and the World Bank have had devastating consequences on many. For, for, for many African countries. And I think, you know, you see it even today. I think there's a lot of countries still taking new, I mean, Kenya, for example, taking a big new IMF loan, um, despite kind of the history that it's had, and, and despite the adverse economic effects that it's been proven to have. So this is a continuing kind of problem of, of, of kind of massive indebtedness of, of African states and there, which constrains their ability to also pursue policies that are, to the benefit and to some extent of, uh, of these countries' own populations.
0: I mean, the the Western approach to restructuration and adjustment has always been anti-redistributive. I think this is the key thing to hang on to. Therefore, you can really have only one sort of project uh, which falls far short, really, even of social democracy. You've got to have a system that's efficient and lean and uh, 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 and one that proposes minimal government and um, I- ideas of uh, self-definition and self-making and um, standing on one's own feet—that is really what the, the the loans propose.
1: And yeah, and private ownership of and privatization. A I minute, mean, kind of prevents Yeah, prevent, yeah so the idea of
0: well, crucially, privatization as, as a as a as a desirable form of, uh, of, of 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 economy. The larger the private sector, the the better the economy as far as uh, most of the lenders were concerned, are concerned.
1: So national liberation is still very much an ongoing project?
2: I would say so, but it's transformed fundamentally into an entirely different project. I mean, the questions we're facing now are different questions. Um, The problem space is a different one. The geopolitical context has shifted quite a lot. But I do think there is a sense of, you know, I, which I think is something that I say, I do think there is something of the idea of national liberation. There's aspects of that project that are still very much relevant today. And kind of if we go back to some of these uh, figures that are mentioned throughout, my, throughout the piece, who are kind of, you know, formed contacts with the Soviets, for example, there's still something about, I think, their political thought that is relevant today and some of the problems they were addressing that's still relevant today.
0: Kevin, I, uh, something I, uh, I'm interested in, what you last said, it's no longer national liberation, uh, one feels, is it? It, it? There's something more continental about, about the types of struggle and ways people are thinking about what it is that has to be done. And I just wondered whether, whether you could say that th- th- this was properly post-colonial in some way, a new way of thinking, and, and, and um, after an unrecognizable set of changes that have occurred since the early 90s, really. And yet, this is the puzzle I find you know, colonialism, it, it's got its kind of persistence, hasn't it? I mean, it, it's still there. It, it's, it's not exactly kind of entirely legacy stuff, but it's, it infuses the way that we think about the continent and the way lots of people who live on the continent think about it. And yet this gathering energy in Africa, which one senses is, is no longer an anti colonial thing. It's evolved into a new kind of set of, of principles and uh, aspirations.
2: Yeah, I think you're right, Jeremy. But I think um, there's I think there's a lot of work also to be done in, in figuring out what exactly these new movements are, what the problems are they're facing, what the kind of project is here. Because I think there they can be um the usefulness of these ideas of national liberation, but it just needs to be picked up and almost transformed um, into something into something different and into something that kind of works in this contemporary context because I think it's just, you know, many years after the end of the Cold War now, the kind of ways that I think we've spoken about China as well, being involved in Africa is different than it was at the time. Um, Russia's involvement has completely changed in terms of, you know, from being the Soviet kind of benefactor of the national liberation movements to being an almost covert kind of or mercenary military presence um, in several countries throughout the continent, which is an entirely different, you know, it it does have something to do with the legacy of the Soviet Union's involvement in, in Africa, but it's something quite different now. And the interests, the strategic interests that are being pursued are something quite different. But I do think there is a sense that I mean, maybe sometimes people call it the second war of liberation or, you know, or like um, just kind of it's another wave of liberation that might have to come. What exactly we can call it at this point is up in the
1: air, but there is something to it. Kevin Ocost, Jeremy Harding, thank you both very much. Thanks very much. Thank you, Tom. You can read Kevin's piece in the current issue of the LRB along with Danny Garavelli on the murder of Nicky Allen and James Butler on Italo Calvino. Jeremy's pieces can be found in the paper's online archive. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.